Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. Pushkin. Kentucky singer-songwriter Sturgill Simpson is used to doing what he wants, when he wants. At least until contracting COVID in early March sidelined him. After a rough, months-long battle with the virus, Sturgill was itching to get back into the studio. So in October, he released a surprise bluegrass album that masterfully reworks his back catalog, called Cut and Grass Volume 1. Sturgill was in his mid-30s when he found fame as a country artist in Nashville. He had already lived a full life, including a stint in the Navy and years spent working in Salt Lake City rail yards. His outsider status in Nashville only boosted his outlaw appeal. But as time passed, Sturgill began to despise the relentless expectations of the major label system. So in true rebel fashion, Sturgill has now taken back control of his career and returned to his independent roots. In this interview with Rick Rubin, Sturgill explains why his Bluegrass album is the purest expression of his work, why it bothers him that people often overlook the stories in his songs, and why being classified as a country star has been perhaps the biggest detriment to his career. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Sturgill Simpson. What's happening, Maine? Oh, uh, not much, man. Sunday morning is a donut day around these parts. So for the kids, so that's my that's daddy's day to get up early and go handle breakfast and all that. So is donuts only on Sundays? Oh yeah, only on Sundays and only for the kids. I don't I don't touch that shit. So what's your what's your diet like overall? Mostly I just try to monitor blood pressure ever since the COVID. So nothing that's gonna like cause a lot of cholesterol and things like that. Blood pressure or blood oxygen? Blood pressure. Really? How did how did COVID affect your blood pressure? Uh, the early onset, everything was just insanely high when I went to the hospital. My my initial reading when I checked in the ER was like 187 over 164. 
about to stroke out like an old man. So is that a normal COVID? I hadn't heard that one before. You know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I honestly, I was pretty obsessive about it for a couple months after I had it, and then now I feel like I have superpowers. But uh, so I've gotten kind of lazy. I don't know where the preliminary studies are coming at, but I mean, the symptoms are sort of all over the place. For me, it was just this really intense frontal lobe headache and some severe chest tightness, which is what led me to uh, have her take me in. Yeah. Did you did you know people who had it before you had it? No, man. We we played the last show of our tour on March 10th in Charleston, South Carolina. And it was only that day that there was any type of mainstream media awareness where like when all the panic buttons started going off and we were all just sort of like, whoa, there's a lot of people back here, you know? So the next day we had off and we're supposed to be heading to, I think, Virginia or Philly for some shows that weekend. And my wife and I were still in Charleston. And I was just like, man, I don't feel right. Like I was just physically just, I don't know how to even describe it, man. I was so the most intense fatigue I felt in a long time. And, you know, with this job, if there's one thing that you are become accustomed to, it's fatigue. But this was something different. So, and then that, that day I just told her, I was like, I don't think, I think I need to go home and rest. Like something's not right. I can't breathe. And uh, all the, the inner voices like i probably got this shit in europe like here we go and then the next morning i was in the hospital so wow and how long were you in the hospital for oh i was just there for about six or seven hours they wouldn't uh well they wouldn't even test me and then the doctor spent about 40 minutes sitting on my bed with his mask off telling me all the reasons why i couldn't possibly have contracted and it wasn't in europe at that time and it was so rare and all the stuff we now know to be completely false not to complain there's a whole lot of people in a hell of a lot worse shape than i was but so how did you know you had it if they wouldn't test you? Just what they were saying about symptoms. And uh, it felt like I had a ratchet strap going on around my chest. And uh, my wife had been really fatigued and tired, too. And that initial onset only lasted for a couple of days. Those, those symptoms all sort of evaporated as fast as they came on. And then I was just really tired for about two or three weeks. I felt just, you know, took like two naps a day, which is very unlike me. What made it better? Because you, you didn't take any therapeutic drugs? Uh, actually, my yeah, my booking agent, JL, brought me a big old cornucopia basket of, like, holistic medicines and vitamins and um, a lot of, a lot of you know, detoxifants and stuff. I was just drinking tea a lot, a lot of water. And plus, we live out in – we're pretty secluded. I probably overshot it on the seclusion, to be honest. And uh, so just eating a lot of vegetables and, and – trying to be healthier and going for walks. And uh, and then I think it was around March 12th or 13th, I was in the hospital, and we didn't actually get tested until the first very, very early April, and I was still, they still detected, like, positive wow. result. So I must have had a really large viral load or exposure, I guess, for it to stick yeah. around that long. I don't know. And do you have any, um, like, do you have asthma or any... Uh, no, no, nothing. Allergic like to anything? No, my lungs are huge, man. I got like big fat swimmer lungs. So I, the whole tour, you know, we played nine or 10 shows. I can't remember. And like something wasn't right. I remember vividly knowing I just couldn't get a real deep inhale on stage. And I've lost like 20 pounds before the tour. I was really making a conscious effort to be healthy. And I was living cleaner. I stopped smoking pot and all that shit, you know? And, uh, and just every night I was like, what is God? I'm old. Like this is middle age. It's here now, you know, something's going on, but I guess, it was just slowly <laughs> metabolizing through my system. 
But you, you essentially beat it with no Western medicine, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's healthy. It was, you know, I mean, it sucked. I've, I've definitely never woken up in my entire life and said I need to go to the emergency room. Yeah. And this was like a, something's very not right here. And, yeah. and then it went away. And then, you know, some friend like Prime passed away. That was pretty close after. I don't know, man. It's it's so funny to me that you see all the denial and people just calling it fear mongering or whatever. We we're here renting a house uh on the east coast and or the guy we were renting from, he got it and was in the hospital for a while, like the handyman who I would constantly have to ask him to mask up every time we come over in the yard, he would kinda of look at me and laugh. He was in the hospital for two weeks just recently so you know he's not laughing now but it's it's some real shit man <laughs> absolutely a man i'm so glad you're i'm so glad you're over it it's uh like i said now it's i feel strangely sort of rejuvenated i haven't felt i'm probably just from being off and having rest for the first time in eight years but i feel pretty great right now yeah uh tell me about kentucky you grew up in kentucky mm-hmm. what's it like growing up there I, I and again i'm really asking out of ignorance i know very little in some ways, not at all what most people probably think, and in a lot of ways, exactly like that. Um, it, it, Kentucky's a weird state. Depending on what corner or region you're in, you might as well be in different worlds. I'm originally from southeastern Kentucky or the Appalachian region, so um, our, you know we used to be coal mining, strip mining country, uh, bluegrass country, and then my my dad had a he was a state trooper. He kind of ran the gamut of that career, and I think when when I was younger, he was doing some more uh sketchy kind of work that put a lot of stress on my mom and 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 their marriage when i was a young kid so i think we ended up moving he took a transfer and got out of doing that stuff and uh we ended up moving up to central kentucky eventually settling in a little town uh versailles the locals call it versailles (laughs) i remember you know it's a good place to grow up but i do remember always feeling the wanderlust you know so I left. I left for boot camp in the Navy. I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks after I graduated high school, just ready to go and get out. You know. Yeah. What was the music in the house that you grew up in like? Oof. In the house I grew up in, my mom listened to a lot of Motown, like Rod Stewart and stuff like that. And then she had, she still had her old forty fives when she was a teenager. And then my grandmother had. A, she had one of those old, you know the. Those furniture type record players that had the built-in speakers, and you'd flip the lid and had to reach down in. And my grandmother just had a ton of old soul music, and that's what she listened to. So those are probably the first records I was exposed to. And then CCR, and uh, my, I think the first song I learned how to play on guitar was probably "Sunshine of Your Love." How old were you then? Probably s- was second grade. So got my first guitar around second or third grade. And I remember why I was like Nickelodeon was really big back then, you know. So I remember I was I watched the Monkees when I was a little kid on TV. So honestly, those songs I had all those records, those songs which we now know were like Nielsen and Neil Neil Diamond tunes. So you know, they're getting that melodic chop burned into your brain at a young age. And then uh, I had an older cousin and also an older next door neighbor. Both of them were teenagers when I was in like I'd say fifth grade. And they both corrupted me pretty good and proper. I mean, I, I was exposed to Appetite for Destruction and I don't even know, man, Hendrix and the whole Zeppelin box set found it all. Like probably, I, I used to say way too young, but now, I mean, I responded immediately. So I guess it was right on time, you know. When you were a kid and you, you'd hear Jimi Hendrix and you'd hear Appetite for Destruction, did it all seem like it was um, 
music from the past or was it clear when something was more current and something was from the more distant past? I, I definitely think it was clear when things were more from a different era or just the way I remember like the sound of it, you know, just, it just sounded lived in and cooler. And, mm-hmm. but now, you know, appetite, even that sonically uh, to a fourth or fifth grader, because at the time MTV was probably playing God knows what poison and Def Leppard videos ad nauseum over and over. And I, rem- I remember vividly, seeing that video for welcome to the jungle come on because we, we were living in this apartment one summer and i couldn't go outside mom and dad worked all day and i had to stay inside and uh i was so young i couldn't really do much so i was just sit and watch mtv all day and that video came on man and it was like you could just feel the danger you know what i mean i was just like oh shit this is this is something entirely different like this is real you know and i remember i remember that being so clear like i gotta know everything about this you know and um and then later on that year, I guess, I hadn't really heard the record yet. And we had an older, my next door neighbor was this older kid, Michael, and he had a navy blue Chevy Nova. And he like used to run away from home all the time and shit, you know, he's a bad kid. And uh, he was he was basically Wooderson from, from Days and Confused. And uh, he pulled up one day just cranking that record in his car and I was out, I was outside. I don't even know what I was doing. Probably sitting on my butt in the grass and I heard it. And I was just like, what is that man? And he, and he was such a dick. He was just like, fuck you been kid in the cave is guns and roses, man. And he gave me the cassette tape. Like he gave me the cassette and it still had, had the original artwork in the middle with the robot jumping the fence and all that shit. And man, I wore it out. My mom found it, threw it away. Cause she saw the, she saw the artwork and everything. I think I ended up buying like two more copies that ended up getting trashed. But that that record was a huge a huge bomb going off for me, and then yeah, Cream, Hendrix, and then I had a big Clapton phase for a while. I got real into Clapton and just like reading everything I could find about him, and then that takes you down these holes to you know guys like Peter Green and uh, all the John Mayall stuff, which which takes you back to the Chicago and Delta, and it was just this rabbit hole, man. I was like a weird sixteen year old into a lot of shit that. You know, it was probably nerdy, I guess, looking back on it. Uh, did you have many experiences of your mom taking away stuff and throwing it away? That record and the other one she pulled, she popped out of the tape deck and tossed out the car window once with Steppenwolf when the pusher came on. Wow. She was just like, no, sir. <laughs> you know, so uh, anything talking about pimping and pushing hoes and, and selling <laughs> drugs was probably nothing your mom, a mom wants their nine-year-old bumping to. And my dad was a state cop too. And he was probably the the biggest supporter of it. He bought me my first guitar. And what was, what was your dad's taste in music? Like rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. He took me, he took me to see Van Halen in like fourth or fifth grade. So it was always, you know, he liked to party. Yeah. Do you ever go down rabbit holes of uh, different kinds of music that you haven't listened to before? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. Um, I, one year, what year did Blonde come out, that Frank Ocean record? 16, maybe? When Sailor's Guide, I think it was around the same time Sailor's Guide came out. And I was just, I wanted to listen to something like so far away from anything that I did or understood. And I heard a song, a friend of mine played, was listening to that and heard a song. And I was just like, I remember being struck by the production values and the sounds and I, I, I just was like, I have no idea what he's doing or how he made these noises. And that, and it really fascinated me to just stick my head in something that was so different than, than the tools that we use, you know. And I listened to that record for about a month straight. Must have been 
but yeah, a lot of hip hop, weirdly. Maybe not. I don't know. One thing I never really got into, I guess, was jazz. Other than the, the basics, you know. Yeah. I predict you will. Maybe. <laughs> It's coming. Yeah, hillbilly jazz. but uh, Let's talk about bluegrass a little bit in general. I, I know almost nothing about it. Tell me about, what do you know about bluegrass? You could start from the beginning. Well, okay. I got out of the Navy. I know, I know more now. I've forgotten a lot. In my 20s, I was obsessed. Like, scoured the earth kind of shit. Um, and when I was younger, my grandfather, I wrote this little letter I sent out with the record. He, he, my paternal grandfather was obsessed with it. It's all he thought about. Spent his entire later years going to festivals, and it's all he listened to. Uh, to the point, of, it would drive my mom crazy. And he would always try to push it on me, you know, even like a real young age. But my palate wasn't ready, man, because it's, it's very complex music, you know. It was always recorded, or would you see people play it live? mostly field recordings and then he took me to a festival one year out to horse park and it was like that was that i do remember vividly feeling like i was watching magic because these guys were like dancing around the mic it was old school you know it's still early 80s and then in jackson where i'm from every labor day they had this thing a festival in the city called the honey festival and on friday nights i think they'd have rock bands and on saturday night it was bluegrass and all the old timers I mean, dude, it was like something right out of a, a time warp. These guys would come down from the hollers and the hills, like in their start shirts and overalls and dance to this shit. And it was like probably the last of that stuff, you know, time capsule kind of thing. But those images are burned into my head. And so that was really the early exposure. But then it wasn't until I got out of the military, uh, I'd gotten off some pretty, pretty heavy drugs was kind of floating pretty hard for about a year and I got home and I was clean. I was just like dealing with all that, like the shame spiral and everything and like trying to figure out my mom had remarried. Nothing was, everything was just up, uplifted. You went into the military just to escape, escape home. Basically. Uh, well, yeah, escape home. And also I, I kind of got in some trouble. I got really lucky, but I, I got in some trouble my senior year of high school, just doing shit. I shouldn't have been. And it was sort of like a wake up call. What was the experience, your service experience like? Uh, well, it was peacetime for starters. And I was stationed overseas for the for majority of it in Asia, Southeast Asia. And we'd go a lot of places I, I would have never seen otherwise. And that turned into some songs later on in life, thankfully. But, um, you know, a lot of a lot of experiences that were eye-opening. A lot of expense, experiences that were probably things I could have done without things I wish I hadn't seen older dudes. I hadn't, I wish I hadn't been exposed to, you know, sailors and life that comes with that. And you just hard to wash a lot of that shit off, man. Um, but then we, there was a lot of, a lot of, mostly a lot of drinking and partying, to be honest with you. And, and, uh, a lot of girls, that kind of thing. Like what you do when you're stuck in this, like, tyrannical oppressive environment with lots of sharp corners and gray paint you know what i mean like as an artist it was like what the fuck have i done you know and you're you're stuck we'd go out to sea sometimes like 90 108 days you know so like it's basically prison i mean you're basically in yeah. prison eating better food maybe i don't know so i got out and uh, i was just ready to i was ready to not be that anymore and i went a little yeah. too buck wild how long were you in for Uh, long enough, about three years. Yeah. And like I said, I just sort of burned it at both ends. And I came home 
And I was really lost, man. I was really lost and probably severely depressed and serotonin levels were still finding their way home and that kind of shit. And uh, I was driving down the road one day and I heard, it was a Monroe Brothers song. And I want to, I'm trying to remember what the song was. It wasn't something as easy as, it was like a deep cut, probably Long Journey Home or something, man. And it, I had to pull the truck over. I was just like, the tears just, it just, it, it slammed me in the chest. Everything, like I, whatever it was, there was a, extremely visceral connection and an emotional reaction to that music. And then for the next, I'd say seven or eight years, I don't give a fuck about anything else. Was it in the song itself or were you reconnecting to something from childhood by hearing it? It was the inflection of their voices. It was the, the, the lyric, the underlying, like dare I say religious themes, but like pain and lament and sorrow, but mostly, man, it was just the voice the voices and the music and the notes, it took me back to like just childhood memories and like funerals and these things that you can't really put a finger on. But I knew like this is this is where I'm from. We'll be right back with more of Rick's conversation with Sturgill after a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're back with Rick Rubin and Sturgill Simpson. Let's talk about the Sailors album a little bit. It's uh, it, it's very different than what came before. How about how does it happen? I mean, that one 
I think more than any record I've made, I probably heard in my head in, or in terms of the blueprint before we went in what I wanted to do and what I wanted to incorporate. I was listening to a lot of Marvin Gaye, a lot of Memphis Elvis stuff at the time and wanted to, you know, Metamodern was just me and the three other guys in the room. Once we set the mics up and hit record, we didn't really move or change anything. It, was, it wasn't... Uh, so the songs has all kind of been carved out live on the road in this three-month tour prior to us going in and banging that record out. And so I knew I didn't want to do something that stripped down and raw again, for starters. And then two, I was my, I was my first label record. And the only reason I really signed with the label was for a larger recording budget. So I was like, well, you know, I don't really want to make a $10,000 album because that's, that's not what we're doing here. So, uh, and you have that toolbox now available and opened up to you. And I just kind of went all in on it, man. And wanted to make this really lush and cinematic uh, sort of soundscape to accompany the story of the album. And some of it was notes. Some, some, like I told you, man, I had like probably four songs, five songs. And then we got in the studio and I had like little pieces and things that there was nothing for me to like play for the band so they could chart out form and sit there and do the things. So it was kind of like nobody really knew what was happening, but me to much to Ferg's, uh, dismay some days <laughs> and uh but it, it all came together pretty pretty fast i think four four or five days maybe and so you did the basic tracks with the band and then all of the orchestration happened after yeah we overdubbed the strings and the horns later yeah but those were in your original vision for the songs those were always there some yes and no but it was i think there was there was definitely a moment once with that first three days of tracking, and I just looked at Ferg and I was like, "We got to do Cox this shit, man." I was like, "We got to get, we got to get strings." I want to hear horns. He was, just, he just kind of sat there smoking a cigarette. And he's like, "Yeah," and then, you know, so uh, we went up to New York for a couple of days and recorded the Dab Kings and the and the string quartet there at the Atlantic Studios. Yeah, and then that's when I finally heard it. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, there it is. It's such a surprise coming from the first two records. You know, it's like, right. it's a total departure. But for me, not so much. I felt like getting away from other influences or maybe agendas, I was finally able to make the music I'd actually been influenced by and listening to as a kid growing up, which was more yeah. soul and rock and roll and things more so than like Hank Jr. or Waylon Jennings, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, I moved to Nashville and I just had all these country songs and I guess a lot of it just not knowing where to start. Well, this is what you do now. You make like these hard country records. And I love that music too, but I don't really hear a lot of my voice, especially on that first one. Metamodern more so, because like I said, we worked it out on the road and uh, and Dave did a good job on the console and mic choices and stuff like that. But Sailor's Guide was honestly for me, I guess, stretching my legs a little bit more for the first time. And talk about the new one a little bit. The Grass was there was zero planning on that one that was definitely okay well i've always wanted to make a bluegrass record now i have the time i'm not going on tour anytime in the next two or three years so uh i I was feeling better i think i was mostly just excited that i I was finally feeling good by june early june and i called ferg up and i was like man you know i've always wanted to do this we did this big fundraiser thing online because i had this I've been on Instagram for maybe a month or two, and then just everything hit the fan. We had incorporated some charity stuff into the tour with the ticket sales, 
And I was just trying to figure out a way to continue that and actually hold hold through on that promise. So, uh, and then it turned in, you know, there's a big tornado in Nashville and all the COVID shit. And we just we were like, well, we could raise some money for Music Cares because everybody's out of work now. And the fans totally blew it out of the water, man. I don't know what, what I expected. All in all, we raised about a half million dollars, I think. So amazing. I was just like, well, I, I got to put a record out now because I promised him I would. So it was like, just, uh, I also knew I was about to have at least the rest of this year off. Yeah. And I, I knew I wanted to spend a lot of time focusing on my kids and home, things that had sort of slipped through the cracks because of the work. And I didn't want to sit around the next six months thinking about what that next thing would be. So I just said, fuck it, let's just do the next thing now and get it in the can. And it was I'm glad I did it because now I've just been fishing and changing diapers for the last couple months while we were set up putting this thing out. It's great though. It's I love it. Thanks, man. I really love it. Had you ever looked at the songs through the filter of bluegrass before making the record? I mean, yeah, they were all written on a D twenty eight probably sung and played a little too fast just because that's where my natural, I have a tendency to push things a little bit ahead like most bluegrass pickers. And um, so when you make country records, you basically just slow everything down. I could put some form changes here and there to make it stretch out and, and phrases, but they were all, I mean, no bullshit, man. I'd say 80% of them were written as more as bluegrass songs than anything. So, so, so these renditions of the songs are closer to how they were originally written. Yeah. Before they became country songs. Well, they're, they're written closer to who I am more naturally. Uh, that's my voice and my instrument. And like I say, if, like, if, you, if I had to express myself in a medium as truly as possible, this would be it. Yeah. It's one of the things I came away from listening to it was um, the lyrics. Now, even though I've heard these songs before, there's something about hearing lyrics when there's not drumming going on. Yeah that they hit you in a different way. You 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 understand them in a different way. Well, I'm pretty and hard to like understand it, in general. So. <laughs> it feels like this this album really is the the storytelling version of the story of these songs where it's really about the lyrics. Thanks man. That's always been some I've never said anything about it, but it has always sort of bothered me that uh the last 6 or 7 years I put these records out and I'm writing all the songs and all anybody talks about is my voice or the production, or the instruments, but it's like, they're missing the story. Yeah. And even some of the fans aren't really listening, or at least some of the fans I used to have, because they've kind of fallen off now that they figured out more who I am. <laughs> so it's been, it's it's all just learning and growth, I think. But finally hearing these songs the way they were probably always intended to is is very gratifying for me. Is it is it acceptable to do songs that are not in the canon in the bluegrass style? I'm, I don't. I think anything is acceptable if you mean well, it. I'm just asking in the bluegrass community. I, I don't. I don't know anything about bluegrass. I mean, I, I I was told like it was unacceptable to put horns on a country record, even though I grew up in my grandfather's car here in Merle Haggard do it. So I don't. I don't know, man. I guess it depends who you ask, based on their their criteria of what fits their identity that week. I don't know. I I made what I thought to be a true bluegrass record with some songs that are probably country songs and, and also, yeah. and also bluegrass songs. So. Yeah. I feel like it's got potential to turn more people onto bluegrass who might not already be into it. I feel like that's the real potential that's held in this work. That That's the goal. I mean, 
I was, I've always been trying to turn people on, even with the earlier stuff, maybe to country music that wouldn't necessarily be into it or to change their opinions of what it could be. And then I've, I've, it's been all, this is weird to say, but having that word, that C word attached to my name as an artist has probably been more of a detriment to me in my career in terms of reaching my actual fan base than anything because so many people that don't listen to country music, they only know it by what they've been told the last 25 years to believe it is, you know, from watching award shows on TV and stuff. Or, uh, you know, I, don't, I have no desire to sit here and talk shit about any of that crap but anymore, but it, it just is what it is, you know. Um, yeah. So then you have to sort of point out, oh, it can also be this, you know. I don't know if artists would ever really give any of this stuff thought if they didn't have to sit down and answer questions when it was time to put records out about it, you know? I think sometimes it's interesting to think about, though. Like, I feel like uh, we find clarity through through discussion. We think about things we wouldn't normally think about. And I don't know, I learn a lot through the conversations, you know? Well, you know, man, I'll tell you what. Starting in this business at 35, 36, really actually taking a go at it, trying to be a pro musician. I was, I was damn near middle-aged. Unlike, I'd say, 95 or even more percent of the people that start out at 18 or 19, and this is all they ever know, you know. And I was so, I was so hell-bent at first on, like, I finally found something in my life to be ambitious about because we had a child on the way and I knew like, I have to make this work. This has to happen. It has to succeed. I got to take care of my family. I want to have something I can look back on and know that like, I didn't compromise whatsoever. And it's like, I did this the right way. And it was very important to me and it still is. And then somewhere along the lines, you know, you get on the train and it's hard. I've always said, it's hard to tell how fast the train's going when you're on it. And next thing you know, you think, well, like you get in, you get sucked in or like manipulated. The music industry has a really uh, scientifically applied methodology about making artists feel like if they don't keep treading water, they're going to drown because everybody's got to keep generating their paychecks. You know what I mean? And uh, if something's working, you want it to keep working. So you just keep throwing fuel on the fire. And then next thing you know, you wake up and you're just completely burnt out. And you're like, how did this happen? Who Who was taking care of me? to keep this from happening. And I realized that nobody was putting more pressure on me than I was. And I tell you two things, I can, there was two very distinct incidences that were wake up calls for me and very touchstone reminders. The first one was when I went to Merle Haggard's house for the very first time ever. And he, I think Merle only won one Grammy in his career. And when you walked into the house, it was sitting on the floor used as a door stopper to hold the screen door open, just scratched and beat all to hell. And I was like, got it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, the second one was when Ferg, when we came out to LA to go to the awards and when he took, he came, he brought me to visit and meet you for the first time. And I can't, really? we, yeah, we were hanging out. We were there in the room that you're sitting in right now. And he asked you, you got any records up for anything this year, Rick? And you said, I don't know. And I knew you weren't bullshitting. And I was like, that's it. That, I mean, that's it. Just just make art and fuck the rest, you know? And, uh, yeah. and I've been trying to, like, commit and live in that headspace ever since, man. And just, just block out all the, the trivialness and the hegemony. Yeah. 
of the the system that that makes us think we all have to end up on these lists every year, like standing at a podium, giving little speeches, because it doesn't have shit to do with anything about like connecting with human beings and making music. Yeah, there's so many distractions that that uh, can really get in the way, and uh, and and putting the blinders on and focusing on making something that you love. That's all it's about. If you love it, it doesn't matter if anyone else likes it. And if you love it, there's a better chance someone else might like it because at least one person cares about it. You. Yeah. Or it wasn't for that person. Which is fine. But there's two or three other people out there that maybe everything I've done before wasn't for them, but this thing saved their fucking life. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's hard to, to describe. Yeah. How much do you take into consideration the audience in the making process when you're writing and when you're recording? Is it okay to say zero? Absolutely. That's the right answer. In the studio, I'm not thinking about how's this going to translate live. That's all. That's yeah. like a problem to worry about later, you know? Yeah. It's really just, does it feel right? Does it sound right? Could this be better? Or uh, is, it, is this gross enough? I don't know. Like, these are thoughts that I have more so that are people going to like this. I think if you start thinking like that, you're going to make some shitty records. For sure. Absolutely. That's, that's why I asked the question. And so, and there are so many artists who really do pollute their process thinking about the audience, and it and it really just undermines the whole the whole enterprise. Oh, and you can hear that if like, people just keep making the same records over and over. Then what are you yeah. what are you really chasing or serving? I guess. But well, the bluegrass thing, honestly, this probably came more of uh, yes, what I was listening to. I mean, before we cut this, like I was listening. I love Van Morrison. Him and Marvin are probably my two favorite singers, and. And I think I love Van Morrison even more because a lot of times it's hard for me to understand what he's saying. And that's a complaint that I get about my voice a lot. It's like the enunciation becomes far less important than the emotion behind the note. You know what I mean? And like, you can just feel him squeezing and it's coming from all these different places as opposed to just like, I am articulating now, you know what I mean? But listening to a lot of his stuff, I feel like with the bluegrass record, I, I feel more um, in tune to to that kind of thing right now. Maybe more of like a hillbilly astral week sort of. That would be like my dream record to make. Sounds pretty good. It's what I'd like to hear. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, it's it's weird because I, I I wasn't wasn't on social media at all until this year, and I you know I don't want to be like some definitely have no desire in like hiding behind a public persona or some crafted image to sell records. So I don't know how to, maybe it's a detrimental at times. So I do engage with people, even though people say not to, I mean, the fans are coming, they want to connect and know you. And I've realized that that platform is invaluable in the case you ever really wanted to represent yourself as opposed to having to go through the filter of the press or, uh, you know, a, a press release and hope that the narrative is, what you intended it to be. Whereas opposed to now, like I could just, I got a mic and a light and a computer. I can get online and say whatever I want, however I want to say it. And it can't be twisted. So I think I'll always keep it for that. If no other reason, but also like just seeing the love from people, man. And, and the really seeing the difference that music makes in people's lives, especially through shit, like what's happening right now. um, It's been really motivating for me in a way. And, and sometimes the haters are the, the funnest part. Like, I, you know, if you read that shit after a while, it truly doesn't mean anything anymore. And it's, it almost, I told my wife, like this summer, 
I would get on there and blast them back for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes every day with my coffee. And I was I told her, like, this is kind of like my yoga now. Like I do that and then I don't look at it and I can go walk out in the woods and I just feel amazing, you know? So, so and eventually they go away. It's so funny. The, also the, the social dynamic of it all is if life isn't complex enough, it just fascinates me. Something last week, I, I, she pointed out that like I was, the record was number one on iTunes. My wife told me that. She was like, yeah, it's, it's between you and Luna, this this K-pop band. I was like, that's insane. You know, it's like the bluegrass record and the K-pop record. And I made a post about the absurdity of that. And, of course, there was like, you, you can't control it. It's like, you've seen Ghostbusters 2? No? Okay, I'll spare you. Anyway, there's a river of slime. And when you talk mean to it, it bubbles up. When I think, well, that's like, that's the internet, you know? And of course, like some some slime bubbles started popping up, and it was teetering, in some cases, towards some some xenophobia. And I was just like, "Oh shit! Like, what did I what did I do? You know, I feel I feel responsible. You can't control you. You create this this ripple, and then it turns into this other thing, and it's out of your hands. So then, all the all the Luna fans started coming at me on Twitter, man. And it, like it, it was like, "Holy shit! This is amazing to watch in a way." Then I listened to the record and I was like, man, I kind of dig Luna. This is actually pretty bumping. Uh, so I just said, like, look, guys, you need to motivate, you know, these girls deserve, they deserve more love and respect. And like, if you want them at number one, you need to get off your ass and do the work, you know? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I was like, where's my t shirt? Uh, I'm here for it. Orbit all the way. And it turned into a really beautiful thing in the end. We'll be right back with Sturgill Simpson in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. 
Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Sturgill Simpson. You said when you came back from the Navy, you were depressed. How would you say your moods tend to run in general? Like, what's your... Uh... Oh, bro. Uh, I'm a Gemini. Um, pretty mercurial. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can either be the nicest, most giving, kindest human being on the planet, or, like, I can definitely... Uh, I'm aware, like, especially in the zone if I'm working. Is it like that you're focused to the point of where niceties... Uh, no, man, it's environmental. Uh, I had a real tumultuous childhood. There was some trauma there. And then uh, between between uh, like just experience the military and then working railroad, I just wasn't, I was never in these nurturing environments. You know what I mean? I was always in like shit needs to be done now world. And I don't have time for your fucking feelings. So yeah. coming into this world at 35 and learning like, oh, these are artists and sensitive people. Like I'm also a very sensitive dude, you know, I'm a very emotional dude. And uh, we're all vulnerable. We all have like giant egos and the insecurity that comes with that. And learning how to be a better leader or uh, uh, just to empathize with people who, although you need them to do a job, like they also have lives outside of that. And um, even people that have worked for me, like I have very clear expectations, you know, especially when you're paying people money. Yeah. And and not, not just musicians, like just I've, I've lost friends and relationships around me just from like, I am not happy with what you're doing. And these are my expectations. And then people start crying in the meeting and all of a sudden like, OK, well, I guess I can't verbalize those things um, like that anymore. And these have been very, very important lessons for me, like to know everything is not a train that's 45 minutes late. But it's it's always circumstantial. It's not just uh, you wake up in a bad mood one day and. No, nah, man, I probably got some some sh- some shit going. You know, I probably got, <laughs> me and Kanye got the same birthday. I'm just gonna leave it at that. You know, okay. uh, but all of that with children and and family and root. The last four years is I, I'm feeling. I had some I had some stuff going on. I'll just be really honest without teetering up to like insurance policy, red flags and shit. It was 2017 and 2018. Uh, got pretty dark. I don't know why. I think I just was out there too long. I was drifting too hard and things got slippery and I fell back into some, some ugly shit, especially in on the road. And, uh, you know, you spend too much time alone in hotel rooms, man. And sometimes that translates into more escape and freedom on stage. And it's not necessarily a good thing, but, uh, and then, I woke up to it and just decided, you know what, I'm done. That shit's never, never happening again. And uh, ever since then, it's just been like focusing on 
trying to be a better husband and a, a, a best father I can be and not wasting this opportunity that I've been given, which is to make art that will be here long after I'm gone and affect people that I'll never even know or meet. And like when you really weigh the gravity of that, it's an immense responsibility. Absolutely. I think the only people who I've ever met who've become successful musicians starting in their 30s are you and Bill Withers. I think you're the only two. I was just talking the other night on a Zoom call with Donald Glover about some other things. and he, he said the same thing. His manager, Fan, told me that once two years ago. And I watched that documentary. And I, I love Bill Withers' music, but I didn't really ever know that much about his life. And it, it was kind of, I was taken aback. Some of the similarities, especially in our life before music. He was in the Navy. I think he was from a West Virginia coal town. Hated the industry side of the business, the fickleness yes. and uh, the manipulation of it all. I was, I was just like, whoa, man. And then Donald, yeah, Donald, we were just talking about the other night. And Bill also, uh, I don't know. He, I love the interviews I have read that he gave. Since then, it, it, I, I feel like I understood and know that guy, just how he handles those situations and those types of questions. And there's not a lot of uh, fool suffering, I guess. No. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things that's, that were, was really interesting about him as well is that his music is put in a box because of the genre that he came from right. as you know urban music, really because he was black. Yeah, but he has more in common with Bob Dylan than than he does with most R and B. You know, he's really a singer songwriter. He's a folk song, he's a folk singer, folk songwriter, basically with incredible you know, feel. <laughs> incredible. Do you think yourself more as a guitar player, songwriter, singer? Like, does the music come first, or is it what you're saying? It just depends, man. I've never made a record the same way twice. And that wasn't intentional. It's just the way it worked out. Like the way we approached Sound of Fury wasn't anything like Sailor's Guide or Metamodern and Cutting Grass was the easiest thing I've ever done, the fastest thing. But I mean, I, I play guitar every day. I got, I got a 54 Strat downstairs. That's like the first hour of my day every morning. But the songs, if I'm like, if you're asking like, where do the songs come from? Usually a melody or like me just playing. All my songs are written on acoustic guitars. And then I come up with little riffs and things around later, but it's always like a melody singing mostly. It comes from in here. And usually the melody comes before the words? Usually a line will start things and then the rest comes generally pretty quick. I'm not one of those guys that like wakes up every day and says, I'm going to write for three hours and like trying to craft like a creative college essay or some shit. It really like if it takes me more than 40 minutes to write a song, it's probably not a very good song. Do you write a lot of songs? It goes in phases. I'm pretty lazy, but when I sit down and do it, yeah, I'll write like five or six in a week usually, but no, I don't sit down every day and be like, I'm a disciplined songwriter and I, God bless people that can do that. It's just not for me. Do you, do you collect lines like, um, yeah. over the course of your life, if you overhear a phrase or, uh, or an idea for a song? Yeah, a lot of a lot of scribbled napkins, a lot of like notes in your phone where like you'll write a line and then six months later that ends up being the first thing in a chorus or something. Or I hear somebody's a lot of songs come from hearing things, just observation. You'll hear people talking or pick something up and it's underlying 
meanings or turning things that weren't meant to be metaphors into them. Just play on words kind of stuff fascinates me more than anything, I guess. Have you ever written a song without having an instrument in your hand? Like, has it ever come? For sure. At work. Like, work. I find I don't have a job anymore, but when I worked at the railroad or when I was in the Navy, just like purpose and daily monotonous purpose like a lot of a lot of songs and music and melody can come out of that man like yeah you know without without being conscious of it thing yeah a lot of music comes to me like that when i'm not sitting down to write music uh i wrote turtles in the shower you know pretty much that whole entire first two verses just like came to me in the shower one morning and i literally almost killed myself getting out of the shower to write it all down yeah what was it like working uh, for the railroad Actually, I loved it, man. Um, what was the job? What was your job? I started as a switchman on a switching yard as like uh, this intermodal operator, the Union Pacific Yard. And then you kind of go through, you work up like things. An engineer would drive the trains. Our main job, it was like a main artery center for the entire western region of the United States. We'd have trains coming literally in an X from all corners of the United States. They'd pull in and we'd have to tear them apart put other cars on them, slough them off, build other trains, and then get them crewed and out the gate on time and that kind of thing. So it was like heavy dude shit, you know. It's definitely saw train wrecks and, uh, you know, big big boy pants <laughs> type stuff. And I ended up, I became a yard master for a while, which is like you're in this pickup truck with 18 radios and you're kind of coordinating all the movements of everything. And then they had a nighttime assistant manager position come open and I decided more money, let's do it. Did that. And then I just, by chance, about a year later, the main operations manager took a transfer and they offered me, they offered me the office and like running the operations of, of the yard. And I took it and that's where I fucked up or I'd probably still be there. Uh, just, you know, with, with the conference calls and all that gets literally screamed at by dudes I'll never meet in my life because the train came in two minutes late and left th three minutes early instead of picking up an hour, you know, um, and I, I think I hit vapor lock in a way, just like, wow, this is not, this is not who I am. So I started playing and writing for the first time in about four years at night. And my wife, uh, we weren't married at the time. And she was just like, she just set me down one night, you know, she, cause she's like, look, I know you're miserable. This is creating tension with you and me. This is what you should be doing. Whether anything comes of it or not, this is who you are, you know? Yeah beautiful and that was it and we i think two three months later we had sold everything we couldn't fit in the bronco and drove to nashville wow and that incredible was 2000 the end of 2010 i believe and it's interesting if it wasn't for that change in jobs like you say like right. you 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 worked your way up the ladder yeah. to the point of where it didn't suit you anymore and luckily we get we yeah. get your music now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, before I took the management gig, man, I was out on the yard like twelve hours a day, and it was a good. We'd work three days, have three days off, work four, have four off. You know, and Salt Lake City's beautiful, man. Uh, it's kind of a well kept secret. The yard was out in the west part of the valley in the desert, so like my office was looking at the Okra Mountain Range, and over here's the western face of the Rockies, and there's three hundred days of sunshine, and uh, I, I very well possibly might still be there. If I, yeah. if all of that hadn't gone the way it did, which is a strange thing to think about. Yeah. It's amazing how, uh, how so much of this is out of our control, you know? Yeah. Control is, uh, an interesting concept. Letting go of that, I think has been the greatest lesson for me. 
But also that job taught me a lot that most musicians probably don't know, like logistics and overhead and keeping numbers in the black. So like, you know, even the people around me, I, I, I keep a pretty tight grip on my business. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that because I see how, I see how easy it would be for a lot of artists to just be copacetic and complacent. And then you wake up and you're like, why am I broke? You know, so that would be that's something in terms of dealing with with the mechanics and especially with record labels. And then I self-managed myself for about three years. So I learned more about the business than I probably want to know just out of sheer necessity. I would sit on you know, lawyers and make them explain things to me and like really the back channels of how it all unfortunately works um so and that's been good and it's in terms of like working with my friends people like tyler and margo i've been able to um hopefully give them some pretty valuable advice to keep them from making even some of the mistakes that i made knowing what i know you know yeah and i think it's just finding a new path in what is ultimately a wild wild west again and and there's a real opportunity for artists to put a lot of the power back in their own hands yeah any recommendations you have for uh for artists in general don't sign anything there's no such thing as a good record deal even if you got a great one it's just a it's essentially a a bad loan from a really shitty bank and in this day and age if you got work ethic and hustle and you're not afraid to go out and do the laps and by that i mean go out and build a fan base as opposed to going to an industry town and waiting for a bunch of suits to make it happen for you because that ain't going to happen they're not taking gambles anymore and if that does happen I guess those are the people that like wake up and don't know how hard they just got fleeced a year later. Um, but if you want to play music, do what musicians do and go play music. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I did. And that's the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now. Yeah. Make good music, play good shows, wash, rinse, repeat. My wife, we're okay. But like she told me one time and I realized she was serious. I probably turned down more money than I made just because of what yeah. came with it. You know, cause like that, yeah. a lot of it really kind of freaks me out. Because you're, as an introverted only child, you're letting a lot of shit into your bubble. Yeah. And there it is, you know. And I know there will be a day where I probably uh, don't do this anymore. Yeah. So. I wonder I wonder if that's true. Because if this really is what you're meant to be doing, you can do this for a long time. And in some ways, by choosing not to take the check, you're not taking the office job you're still working in the train yard, yeah, doing the thing that that feels good. Yeah, I think for me, I love the studio, I love creating, and I love playing live when I want to. Yeah, uh, I don't know that I really ever feel the need to go spend nine months a year on a tour bus again, though. That's not really. At a certain point, you're like, wait, who am I doing this for? You know, because uh, I wanted to go home three months ago. <laughs> like, so I think it's learning your limits and learning. You just want everything to be the best you have to give. And it's hard to be inspired if you're not. So that that's what I've learned from it all. Sometimes the best thing I can do for my music is to not play music and go and just live, live for a while. Yeah. I really haven't been, I've been fishing all summer, man. We're down, we're down here on the coast. So I just feeding the crabs and playing guitar, playing with the kids, uh, reading a lot of Harry Potter to them. And then, uh, you know, at night I spend time on the internet looking at really expensive cars that go way too fast. And that's, that's sort of where I'm at, you know? Sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's something to do. Yeah. Writing, writing songs when they come and then looking at, looking forward to what's next. Great, man. Well, thank you for talking. 
You too, man. Thank you, Rick. Thanks to Sturgill Simpson for catching up with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite Sturgill songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries, and if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you catch Season 3 of This is Digital? Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com.com slash compatibility.